We're in for a treat. I think God loves it when our spirits come alive in his presence. And, uh, and I believe that's about to happen. Why don't we take our seats? And uh, I want to introduce Shane. And uh, as I did in the first service, I want to ask a question. Who likes Shane Willard? Yeah. Who, uh, who's, been, who's been here more than maybe five years in a row and seen Shane? Six years he's been here? More, seven years? Eight years? Who's been around nine years? This is their ninth year seeing Shane in this place. Yeah, there's a few hands there. And um, uh, I've just got to say, like, we really do like Shane. He's a really likeable bloke. Uh, but we actually love Shane. And not just, not just what he brings, uh, because sometimes you sort of, you have a relationship with people because of the gift on their life. And that's appropriate. That's okay. Shane's gone way beyond that for us. Coming back nine years in a row. Um, and it's because he is genuinely interested in the, the life and health of our church and our leaders. He reconnects with people. Every time he comes back, he asks after them. He remembers what was happening last year in the life of the church, and he reconnects on that level. And, um, and so not only, I think, is he an outstanding minister of the gospel and a brilliant preacher, uh, but he's actually a really great and genuine friend of the house. And so, Shane, I want to say from us to you, we actually love you and we love what you do. So we're going to ask him to come and do that right now. Come on, let's stand on our feet and let's honour the Word of God and the man who carries it. Come on. Come on, New Hope. Let's give him a New Hope welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, thank you very much. You be seated. If you're the type likes following an actual Bible, we're going to start in the book of Revelation, chapter 8. So we're going to look at that today. It's so good to be here with my friends, my Toowoomba family. I look around, I've gotten to know lots of you, and I, I look forward to uh, the journey uh, well into the future. You have one of the great churches in the world here, uh, one of the great pastors in the world here. I'm an expert in pastors. You have one of the best ones in the whole world. Um, right here, you do. Um, I will say thank you for your, when uh, Chris asked the first service, who liked Shane Willard, the response was quite underwhelming. And um, <clears throat> and gave me a bit of a complex. You you guys, you left no doubt. So uh, so I appreciate that. It's always it's always nice. That's 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 nice to come in. Um, um, for those of you who don't know me, this is all I do. I travel around and speak. I've, I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by, by a pastor who just have, happens to have his rabbi training as well. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So I try to come at things from a lot of different um, bents. On, on your way out in that in the foyer there on the far wall is our resource table. Um, audio, video, automatic downloads, USBs. 100% of what we make from that, we give to the poor um, and the afflicted. And so we have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. Uh, one of those is about a four-hour drive away from Wuhan. So I don't think I need to explain why it's really important that, that, that I continue and, and we all work together to, to bring heaven to that situation. And so um, if you go out there uh, today, um, that, that's where that's going uh, to be going. Um, I've just, um, I'm recording right now a new message series on the book of Revelation. In um, November, I decided to tackle the book of Revelation. And the reason is, is because it's so easy to understand and simple and vanilla. And so, and so I, I decided to go for it. Um, and, and the, the first four, uh, are available out there right now. Um, we're also taking orders for the whole set. So, um, what's, what's going to be happening today, um, and tonight and Monday, um, is we're going to be recording this. Now, why that's important is this. If you have a baby, 
Um, th- th- there's, uh, if, if I make a mistake and say something stupid, I can magically make that disappear. I can edit that out. Um, but the thing you can't edit out of a recording is a baby scream. Okay. So, um, let me, let me define that. Um, it's, it's not fretting or a little bit of cooing. I'm talking about yelling, screaming, really crying or throwing a fit. Okay. If, if, if that's, if that's going on, let me, let me be clear. I'm not upset at you. I'm not upset at your baby. It's a baby. It's acting like a baby. Here's all I'm saying is for the sake of the recording, do not panic, right? Do not put your hand over the baby's nose and mouth at the same time. It's very dangerous. Okay. Do not choke the baby. Do not put the baby in the headlock, right? Just calmly use the exit and use the parents room there until the baby has calmed down. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just very difficult uh, to record over the top of, of, of that kind of thing. So everybody here in my heart there, like, I love you babies. All right. Um, but you know, babies will be babies. And so, uh, let's, uh, let, let's, let's utilize, let's, let's utilize that. All right. So Revelation chapter eight, uh, let me set some context up here. When, when, when you say the book of Revelation, um, people can get pretty dogmatic and passionate about the way they read it. All right. So let me just set the tone uh, of that first. Okay. There, there are, there are at least three different ways that fully devoted followers of Christ read the book of Revelation. All right. The, the first way in no order of preference, the first way is entirely a future book. So this is a book that's meant to tell us all about the future. And if you read it that way, God bless you. You're my brother. You're my sister. I love you. As long as you apply it in the right now, I don't mind, right? Then there's another group of people that read it entirely as a history book. They read it as political liberation literature written from the standpoint of the oppressed over the horrific oppression of the Roman Empire, specifically Emperor Nero and Emperor Domitian. And they read it that way, right? And if that's you, you're my brother, you're my sister. I love you. As long as you read it that way and then apply it in the now, doesn't matter to me. And then there's a third group of people that read it as a hybrid. Here's what they say. They say it's obviously has historical backdrops. Like these are real people at real places at real times dealing with real oppression. There's obvious historical backdrops on it, but we also think it has future implications to it. And if that's you, you're my brother, you're my sister. And as long as we read it that way and apply it in the now, I don't mind. Because here's the last thing we need. If the, if the world who doesn't, maybe haven't even heard of Revelation yet. If they look at how we discuss things like the Bible, may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about one thing. Right? Right? If our message is, is that Christ is reconciling the whole world to himself, what better way to show that than to show it to the whole world in our conversations when how we handle things like the Bible? Because nothing is more nauseating than when Christians argue in public about a book that ironically tells us not to argue about it. Right? Okay? So so however you read it, I'm trying to bring it into the now. Anytime I preach, I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. And I want us to find ourselves in the story. At bare minimum, when we read the scriptures, we should be asking what happened and what's happening in me right now because of what happened. Now, when I practiced this in my hotel room alone, I was going to read the whole passage until I practiced it. And then I realized it's too long, right? So you're going to have to trust how summarize it in the middle, but I'm going to focus on the beginning and the end. This is Revelation 8 and 9. Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. 
Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given him. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God in the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it onto the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So there's a prayer meeting and worship service in heaven, and there's a response. Something gets thrown to earth, and then it all breaks loose. There are, there are groups of these seven plagues that keep occurring on top of one another. I, I just, instead of reading it all, I'm just going to summarize the plagues because I think that's more pl- pleasant to the ear. There was hail, fire, rivers turning to blood, a third of the earth in travail, a star named Wormwood falling to make the water poisoned, a, a triple woe to the earth. There's darkness, locusts, five months of deadly biting bugs. Is this sounding familiar of anything else in the scripture? This is obviously a reference to Exodus. There's a new Exodus story coming up and, and, and God is trying to get people to repent with these plagues and it's just not working. There's people turned suicidal, but they can't die. The, the bugs have armor and they're ruled by the king of death, a guy named Abaddon. And, and, and then and then there's the plague of death. Just to give you a sense of how it sounded, I just picked a passage out of the middle of it just so you could hear some of the language. Now, now keep in mind, this is apocalyptic symbolism. These are metaphors. You don't read the Bible literally. You read it literarily. If the original author was writing something literal, then take it literally. But when it is an apocalyptic symbolic metaphor, read it that way. And nothing's more obvious than that with this. Check this out. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but they did not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when he stings someone. And, and in the days, when, and in those days, people would seek death, but they couldn't find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were, were, were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of the chariot with horses. Okay, so these these are horse riding bugs wearing military armor. Metaphor, right? (laughs) Obviously, Um, this is what was going on. And then it skips on, plague after plague after plague after plague after plague. And this is how the story ends at the end of Revelation 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immoralities or their thefts, and they still did not repent. After all that, they still did not repent. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, what is going on? And then let's ask ourselves, what's going on inside of me because of what is going on? This is first century Asia Minor. They're living under the horrendous oppression of a Caesar named Domitian and a Caesar named Nero. 
by the way, in Hebrew, there are no numbers. An A is one, a B is two, a G is three, a D is four. If you spell out the word Emperor Nero, it spells out 666. If you spell out the word beast, it spells 666. And six was not an evil word. It was not an evil number. It was the number of man. These people were claiming to be God in flesh. And John is taking them on going, if you just look at their name, it's saying, man, man, man. This is what I say. The whole world was living in fear under their horrendous oppression and economic. They were economically marginalizing most people to feed their military machine. The whole place lived in fear. The propaganda on Domitian was that Domitian spirit could inhabit the spirits of every bird in the air. And those birds could be spies and go back and tell him what you said. They put that message on coinage. By the way, this idea even made it into the Bible. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 20, it says, see to it that no one speaks evil of the rich or a king, even in the privacy of your bedroom, lest the birds of the air go and tell the king what you've been saying. It's that kind. Now, if you genre confuse that, good luck with that one, right? Right? The idea is, is don't let evil communication come out of your mouth because you never know how it can get back to somebody. That's the idea. But Domitian took that quite literally. And there's finally in this part of Revelation, there is a prayer meeting and a worship service in heaven for the state of things on the earth. The state of things on the earth are unacceptable and God is going to do something about it. And I want to focus on the end of it and then go back and focus on the beginning. So this passage is an obvious remez, an allusion back to Exodus. A new Exodus is being offered. The end of the story, no one repents. Here's my question. What if the biggest tragedy in this passage isn't the plagues, which were horrendous, but rather the lack of repentance? Here's the thing. This is the same God that was revealed to us in Exodus, but nobody reads the Exodus story and goes, how awful's God? Why? Because the purpose of it was redemption. It was an offer of repentance. It was trying to get people out of slavery into freedom. This is the exact same thing going on in Revelation, but people read this and go, oh, God's just awful. No, 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 no. First of all, these are metaphors. That's first. Second of all, this is God showing that he is willing to go to all kinds of lengths to move us from slavery to freedom. What if the tragedy is the lack of repentance and hardness of heart? Let's say it this way. Repentance is an invitation to turn from the road to death back to life. That, that, that Christianity is not an exercise in appeasing God. It's actually an exercise in celebrating that he was already appeased with us since before the foundation of the world and let our life be a response to that love by living for things that bring life and light instead of death and darkness. That we believe as disciples of Jesus who remain teachable to his way, that Jesus's way of seeing the world brings life, not death, light, not dark. And it's that. And what's happening on the world is the narrative of Caesar is bringing lots of death and lots of darkness and not a lot of light and not a lot of life. The passage in Exodus are showing us that God will go to all kinds of lengths to get us to turn around. The issue with deception is that we normally don't see it. We sometimes don't know what we're even, even turning from, which leads me to this question. Are we living in illusion or raw reality? That's the question being asked in Revelation at this point. Are we living in illusion or raw reality? 
The, the illusions, I got to think, uh, the, the dean of ancient history at Emory University, a guy named David De Silva, he wrote a book called Unholy Allegiances, which is a book about first century Roman government in Asia Minor, and he superimposes revelation over the top of it. And he made this point. He said that the illusions of how culture works to bring life to the whole world was, was rampant in Rome. They had the illusion of elitism, the illusion of consumerism, the illusion of careerism, legalism and tribalism. It was the opposite of come together. It was a lot of us and them. It was even, it was done religiously, us and them. It was done socially. The Romans had a nine level class system. To not bore you, we'll just call them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So there was separation this way. There was separation this way. It was, and, and they had words for it, elitism. Consumerism. The, the issue is, as followers of Jesus, do we simply rename these things in order to justify our allegiances to them? It's not elitism. It's getting ahead. It's not consumerism. It's being blessed. It's not careerism. It's working hard. It's not legalism. We just love the truth around here. It's what we do is we rename the illusions in order to buy into death and we just call it something else. And then we put God, Jesus, Bible, scripture, truth over the top of it. And it's not that at all. In the kingdoms of this Christ, it's Christ holding everything together in every way. Ephesians 1, for the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. For by him, all things were made and in him, all things hold together. In Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, male, nor female, slave, nor free, for we are all one at the foot of the cross. The idea is that the same God that's holding me together is holding you together. And if that can ever journey past a doctrinal point on a pamphlet to a fundamental way of seeing the world, I could not possibly treat you horribly. I can't possibly intentionally harm you without knowing I'm harming myself because I'm coming against the spirit that's holding us all together. If, if that's a doctrine on a pamphlet, boring. If that's a fundamental way of seeing the world, then it would bring beauty. Could you imagine a world where there could not possibly be racism because the same God is holding me together that is holding you together, even if you have a different color skin than I do. Imagine a world with no misogyny. Why? Because male nor female, it doesn't matter. The same Christ is holding us all together. Could you imagine that doctrine in action as a fundamental way of seeing the whole world? Jesus's first and main message was repent. That just means change the way you think. For the kingdom of heaven is here. There's a new narrative to believe. Let's say it this way. Jesus' call to repent was not a put down or a shame-based activity. For Jesus, repentance was not a shame-based activity. It was a fundamental way of living life. That to really live life, you have to constantly change the way you're thinking about something. That actually, if you read the narrative of scripture, there's lots of scriptures that says, and God repented. Well, if repentance is primarily a shame and sin-based activity, then why is God engaging in it? This is not about shame and sin. It's about light and life. And the way to light and life is to create a lifestyle of always challenging the way we think. The picture shows us that judgment don't tend to work for repentance. What you find in the book of Revelation is what we will find in our own life. In the book of Revelation, it, it, it mirrors our walk with God. There is an invitation to repent and believe a different narrative, Christ's kingdom over Caesar's. There's people who say yes to that. Then there's lots of resistance to that, like heaps of resistance. And, and then there's calls to worship. And then there, there's these things where, where people reaffirm that the new narrative is actually better than the old one. And part of that journey 
is they start realizing that judgments, even if they're right, are not effective in changing people's lives, right? There's seven trumpets, there's seven seals, there's seven bowls, 21 different plagues rolling on top of each other. And at the end of each series of seven, the author says, and they still did not repent. 10 plagues on Egypt, and they still did not repent. 21 judgments on the earth, and they still did not repent. That judgment and harm and guilt and fear are never effective at creating life change, even if the judgment is correct. Even if the judge, what the book of Revelation shows us is that finally, towards the end, the story shifts from judgment to a slain lamb willing to die for the whole world. And the slain lamb changes everything. And that is the risen Christ. That the best vision of God given to us in scripture is the vision of God as evinced and shown and manifested by the character and person of the risen Christ. For in him was the fullness of God incarnate. And in that picture of God, you have a God who chooses not to be God in order to identify and suffer with human beings in order to enter into their story and make it more beautiful. That God is not in the, God is not in the activity of avoiding chaos. Rather, God enters into the chaos and brings beauty out of ashes. It's literally the whole story. It's sort of like if a three-year-old drew you a picture and that picture was horrible. And so you judged it. You're like, what is that? That's awful drawing. Come back when you learn how to draw, little girl. No, you would never do that. Why? Because you have a soul. But if she handed you her horrible picture and then asked you to draw something on it, you would not ever get a new piece of paper, draw a perfect picture and say, that's how it's done. This is where you fall short. No, you would enter into her broken picture and make it better. That is exactly what Christ did for the world. He did not come into the world to condemn it, but to enter into to the chaos, the brokenness, the death, and the darkness, and conquer death by bringing life. This is what this story is culminating with. The work of the lamb dies and loves us, and that's what brings life change. Let's say it this way. There's no question that this passage echoes the reality of our lives that evil is allowed. If you've ever wondered, why is evil allowed? Why does God allow evil? Well, God doesn't seem to control it, probably because God doesn't do control. He does love He invites and control is the opposite of love. For God to control something would be him violating his basic essence, which is love. Sometimes we want God to control situations when it's not us. But that's the beauty of how God does the world. He doesn't do control. He does love. He invites us to a table. The plagues are tragic, but the hardness of heart is even more tragic. Just like Egypt. A couple questions I want to deal with, and then we're going to go to the first part. Where are we in line with reality? And where are we believing illusions? Where are we in line with reality? The kingdoms of this Christ that says, actually, you find God in the act of love itself. That God is not someone you love. God is someone you find when you love. When you do something for someone with no expectation in return, that's when you find God. That, that, that actually, the best kingdom is one that raises the level of the lowly to the elite. 
That's the best way to live. The, 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 the one that says you don't hoard your extra stuff. If you have extra stuff, you find a way to bless others with it. That when you see a need, you do everything you could do to meet the need. That's raw reality. Jesus is not about how to go somewhere else when you die. He's about how to live here before you die. How to live the best kind of life here. What, it's not about how do you, where do you go when you die? It's about how do you live before you die? How do you actually experience life? And Jesus is like, hey, life is about, remember when he had that discussion with the Pharisee and he said, if you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, remember what he says? Remember the next sentence? Do this and you'll live. This is about life. This, Jesus's way of seeing the world was life is found by treating others as we would want to be treated is if we were them. This is why the church had better, we, we better get better with this. I'm, I'm like, like the church is not called to be right about one verse in the Bible. The church is called to fulfill scripture. To fulfill scripture is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if we do unto others as we would have them do unto us, we've done something more profound than be right about one verse. We fulfilled the whole lot of it. And that is living. This is a quote by Thomas Merton. Pain is often the only thing hard enough to puncture the human ego. That when we live with illusions, we will believe those illusions. We will cling on it till death, even our own death, unless the illusions bring enough pain to puncture the ego and allow us and invite us to believe a different narrative. Now, back to the first part. So the first question is, is our heart hard? Are we, do we need to change the way we're thinking about something? Where do we need to change the way we think and actually live? My, my second question is this. Do I believe God actually hears prayer? And that sounds like a throwaway question. Like, uh, yeah, do, like do we believe God hears prayer? I, I don't want it to be that. I, that's not my style at all. I want us to stop, meditate on that, and think about it. The belief in our heart that actually matters are the beliefs that drive behavior. Otherwise, they're just bullet points on pamphlets. Boring. Do I actually believe that, does my life's behavior evince a belief that God hears prayer? Because in Revelation 8 and 9, that's what this is about. Let, let me reread the first five verses of this and, and, and tell the story. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That is a long time. Then I saw the seven angels who stood before God and seven trumpets who were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. This is a prayer meeting. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire and from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In other words, all of this activity, God engaging the evil on the earth, the darkness, the death, the things that bring oppression and death and horror was a result of prayer. And in this passage, there are two types of prayer mentioned. There's contemplative prayer, and then there's intercessory prayer. Let's first start with contemplative prayer, and then we'll move to intercessory prayer. It says that there was silence in heaven there's a prayer meeting in heaven and everybody was silent for 30 minutes. Could you imagine going to a prayer meeting like that? It perhaps would be the most awkward thing we've ever done. And the reason is because we're Western Pentecostals. 
Nothing wrong with that. I'm a Western Pentecostal. But like, but like our friends, our followers of Christ, brothers and sisters in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they get this very well. Lots of their prayer meetings are simply quiet, contemplative, inside question asking, right? So here's what their prayer looks like. And this is, this is what a, a Jewish prayer would be. Remember when Jesus taught people how to pray? Here's what he said. This is almost a direct quote. And when you pray, do not go on babbling like the Pentecostals do. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For don't you know your father in heaven knows what you need before you ask? Which goes right to the heart of what kind of God do we believe in? He says, he says, when you pray, in case you didn't pick that up, I was joking about the word Pentecostal. When you pray, do not go on babbling like the pagans do. For they're the ones that think they'll be heard because of their many words. So when Jesus taught us to pray, he says, don't, don't make your prayers about too many words and don't make your prayers about too many needs, which is so convicting. Why? Because I had to ask myself the question, if I removed all the words from my prayers and I removed all the needs from my prayers, what would be left? And I had to admit, not much, which made me wonder, is my prayer life more pagan than it is following Jesus, right? It's a very convicting thing for me. Right? And Jesus is referencing a story from the Old Testament where the followers of Baal are trying to get, they're trying to get fire to come from the sky. Right? Because remember Elijah plays a trick on him? He says, let's see which God answers by fire. And whichever God answers by fire, that's the real God. And they agree to it, which is so dumb. It's like, why would you agree to a contest you can't win? They must have thought they could win. The reason they thought they could win, you could go to Israel today, get on the right tour, they'll show you this, there's a model of it. What they had done is they built the altar to Baal really high, and underneath there was a passageway where the servants, the, the, the priests in training could be underneath that, and, and on, on a whim, they could just lift torches to these windows in front of the altar, and it appeared like Baal was answering with fire on command. Now, if you have this kind of magic trick control, you can control anybody to do anything. So Elijah shows up and says, I'm sick of it. Let, 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 let's see which God answers by fire. They're like, deal, we know how to do that. And as soon as they agreed to it, remember what he does? He goes, oh no, I know you can bring fire out of the ground. Nice trick. Let's do fire from the sky. <laughs> right? And they're like, oh no. <laughs> and, and, and remember the story, like with no effort or anything, Elijah's like, okay, now. And, and then he goes, your turn. And remember, it says, it says that they shouted his name, then they shouted his name even louder. And when that didn't work, they sang and danced and turned in circles and prophesied to his glory for six hours. And then when that didn't work, they reverted back to the ancient art of cutting themselves. So, so you have a group of people who shouted his name, then they shouted his name louder, then they sang and danced and turned in circles and prophesied to his glory in order to get their God to act. Does that sound like anybody you know? <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> Sounds like us, Right? So, so, so does Pentecostal prayer toe the line of ancient paganism? And the answer is yeah. And before you panic, does God inhabit the praises of his people? Yes. Does he enjoy our song? Absolutely. The issue is not method. The issue is motive. They were doing it in order to get their God to act. We should be worshiping and praying in order to align ourselves with what God's already up to. And that's two different things. Worship is not an activity in order to get God to act. If worship is an activity to get God to act, then it's witchcraft. The question is, are we engaging in witchcraft or worship? That's the question. Are you a worshiper or a warlock? There we go. <laughs> like, 
And the difference between worshiper and warlock is motive. A warlock worships and calls out and to get their God to act. But a follower of Christ knows that their God is already at work and we're trying to align ourselves with what God is up to in our world. And the practice for that is contemplative prayer. This is where you sit quiet before the Lord. You could call it God awareness. You sit quiet before the Lord and you ask questions. Lord, what would I feel like if I could feel you now? Just on the inside. If, if, if I could know you were with me, what would I know? Lord, could you show me a vision of what you're up to in my world, in my city, in my family, in my business? And this is done in quiet. And then out of the quiet comes a vision where we intercede with words. And that's the pattern you see in scripture. It, 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 Jesus said it this way. My father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Terrible translation, terrible. In, in the Greek and in the Hebrew version of Matthew, it says, my father who's as close to me as the air that I breathe, I stop and become aware of you. Well, well that's better, right? My father who's as close to me as the air that I breathe, I stop and become aware of you. So, so what if we, in our prayer time, before we spoke with our mouth, what if we had moments of quiet where we became aware of the presence of God and began to, began to ask introspective questions. Lord, what would this world look like? What would this situation look like? What would my family look like? What would my business look like? If you, if your will, your way, your narrative was controlling the narrative of my life, what would it look like? And then out of that, we begin to speak. That's what's going on in heaven. There's 30 minutes of silence and then there's intercessory prayer. Let's say it this way. Out of silence, action develops. Out of silence, action develops. Do we really actually live as though God hears prayer? Let, 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 and here's the problem with that. And here's, here's the obstacle to that. But before the year 2000, the average human attention span was 12 seconds. Today, the average human attention span is eight seconds. That's because of constant activity on phones. The average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. <laughs> which means we're literally losing to fish. 11% of people are exposed to dangerous noise at work. 23% of people admit to scrolling through the app pages on their phone, even knowing nothing has happened. They unlock their phone and just look at all their apps, even though nothing. 23% of people just do that to keep something going in their brain. 16% of people say they need TV noise on just to feel peace at night to sleep. See, always being connected has damaged our ability to pray and have faith. See, see, 40 years ago, legalism used to be the enemy of faith. And, and, then, and then in the 80s and 90s, when a generation arose that finally had money, they finally had more money than any of the previous generations before it combined. It's an amazing financial bump. According to Forbes magazine, the generation turning 19 today has more money at their disposal by the age of 19 than the previous four generations before it combined. And that's obvious. All you gotta do is talk to them. Ask them. Ask a 19-year-old, what's your plan? They'll say stuff like this with a straight face. Think about taking a year off and walking around Europe. Who's got that kind of money? Evidently they do. I'm 44, never thought of that. My dad's 74, he never thought of that. I, I'm, I don't think my grandparents ever ate out once, but I would bet a pretty good chunk of change that everybody in this room at least once in the last seven days went to a restaurant and ordered someone to cook you food. We're, we're, we're in a bed. See, 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 it used to be legalism. Then it was consumerism. It was, I'm going to believe the illusion that, I, I, the first one is, I'll believe the illusion that the rightest people are okay with God and the not right people aren't. The second one is, I'll believe the, the illusion that the most blessed people, the ones with the most stuff, that that's the way, that's the way Jesus wants us to live, which is the opposite of the way Jesus wants us to live. But now I think it's, I, I think this next generation, 
They've worked out consumerism doesn't work. This is why you can't present the gospel to a 16-year-old and say, if you just believe in Jesus, one day you'll have a mansion in heaven. They already live in mansions. <laughs> not doing it for them, right? right? They realize that's not the answer to joy. See, but today it's distraction and white noise. Distraction and white noise. Not having a place that we can get away and unplug. So let's ask a few questions because great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle. One, how are our prayer lives? All of us together. Do our prayer lives resemble ancient paganism? Screaming at God, trying to get him to act. Or is our prayer life an awareness that God is for the good of the whole world, bringing life and light to it? And how can I participate in what he has been up to since before the foundation of the world? How can I participate with that with my vision, with my words, and with my action? What can I do with that? Two, do we find contemplation hard? And I would say as Westerners, we all do. We all find the silence hard. This is why if you've ever felt real guilty at like camp or something, and you, you commit your life, I'm going to pray an hour a day, <laughs> right? Anybody ever done that? And then the first day, you think you prayed an hour, you look at the clock, it's been four minutes. And you're like, oh no, I suck so bad, right? This is why, this is why fear and guilt and shame, they're just short-term motivators, right? I think Jesus and John here are presenting us with a better way, a way that brings life and infinite possibilities to our prayer life, a prayer life that says, wait a minute, I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to be God aware. And I'm going to ask introspective questions. I'm going to ask God if he was in charge of the narrative of what I'm seeing, this business, this family, this church, this town, this city, this country, this situation, if God was ruling the roost, what would this look like? That injustice would be, would bring justice to it. That oppression would end. That thing would stop treating those people as less than everybody else, that would end. And we get a vision from that in quiet to empower us to call it out with our words and with our confession. What would that look like? Number three, where have we lost our God awareness? Where has the white noise of our lives replaced being aware of God in our life? Where's the phone? Where does the phone just need to go away? Look, if you don't have a day a week that you don't check your email, I think we have too inflated of a view of how important we are. The, the, the truth of it is, is that if it all went away, I, I, I got robbed last month. They took everything. I, I was in a parking lot with my clothes on. They took, ready? They took my computer. <laughs> I was without a computer for 23 days. And the world kept going. God was still up to stuff God was still speaking with me God was still planting um, creative things in my heart like sometimes we can disconnect to really get in line with God awareness white noise can hurt us number four how, would, how far would God have to go for us to turn around if you look at your life See, Ezekiel says it this way, that God is not a God who watches people destroy themselves and loves it. Rather, he is pleased when they turn around and live. It's a direct quote from Ezekiel 18. In, in other words, God's not watching people destroy their life and going, oh yeah, get you some of that. I told you, it's not God. And if that's your image of God, change yourself. 
The, the, the image of God is if God sees someone on the path to death, he's going, get off the road. Come on, change lanes. At least change lanes. Okay, the next exit would be a good place to get off. That road hands off that cliff. Where, where do we need to repent? Turn around, challenge the way we think. Where have we closed the conversation about God instead of opening it? Because here's the truth. On our best day, we might have scratched one one thousandth of one percent of one, what God is. One one millionth of one percent. It, it's such a small amount. There's an infinite eternal place that we can grow and change and move. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. If I understand one one thousandth of one percent of what God is, and you understand one one thousandth of one percent of what God is, and they just happen to be different one one thousandths of one percent, at first it's going to seem like we disagree. But if we just humble ourselves and listen to one another, we might actually leave with two one thousandths of one percent of what God is. And that would be a better world. A world where we are listening and learning and realize that we have an eternity of endless possibilities journeying to more and more and more understanding what God is. So my brothers and sisters, may we believe not on paper, but in our heart. May we have a belief that drives action, that God hears prayer. May we practice contemplative prayer and then out of that, out of that vision for what God has for us, may we begin to discipline our confession around it because God acts. And may it never be said about us that despite all of God's efforts to get us to turn around, that they still did not repent. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We, we proclaim your king. There's nothing like you. And Lord, we bring our brokenness, our pain, um, our chaos, our disorder, and ask you to bring beauty and new creation and fresh starts and second chances and the opportunity to tell a better story. Just in the quiet of this moment, I'm going to be totally quiet for 15 seconds. And I want you to ask the question, what would this situation look like if you were in charge and do nothing but see, listen, The image God brought to my mind was a premature baby we prayed for in the first service. So Lord, we're going to call down life and light over that child and health and wholeness. And we ask that your presence that brings light and life would flood the hospital room or the nursery or the bedroom where that baby is at. And may in the hold and embrace of her parents, may she feel the presence of God and be flooded with life and light. And may we live prayerfully. Amen. I'd like to give you an invitation back to tonight. Um, it's a brand new message. We're going to go through this stuff and um, can't wait to share it. I promise you it'll change your life. If you come tonight, give us an hour and 15 minutes. If it doesn't change your life, I'll personally pay you back whatever they cost you to come. So whatever the ticket costs to come tonight, uh, I'll give it back to you, right? So it's a totally stress-free thing. Come on back tonight. Journey with us each night this week. I can't wait to journey with you. Grace and peace, guys. God bless. Let's, let's give it up for Shane. Thank you so much, mate. Just love the, the the grace and the accessibility you bring to the things of God. And uh, just as we close, um, you know, you might be here, I guess, and church is not your usual thing. We we have people who come and journey with us every week at New Hope, and um, and maybe church is not so much your thing. And for whatever reason, you found yourself here today. Maybe it was 
at some point in your life, but it's really dropped to the to the background, following Jesus and being open to God in prayer, those things maybe you've become a bit of a stranger to. And I just want to give you an opportunity as we close the service to connect with God, to re-engage with His plan for you. You might be thinking, well, man, I'd like God to get involved in the narrative of my life. And, um, and I want to give just a moment to that for you to be able to intentionally reconnect with God. So I'm going to ask everyone to stand, if you would. Uh, As we get to the end of our service, I'm going to ask our media team just to put a very simple prayer up on the screen. It's a prayer we pray every week uh, here in the church and every service. It's a very simple prayer that's just inviting God to become uh, part of our story as we engage His. It's opening our heart and allowing Him to, to move us along life's narrative. And uh, maybe you recognize today, that's what I need. That's what I need. So I'm going to encourage you, if you've never done that, or if you haven't done it for a long time and you know you need to, to open your heart to Jesus this morning. And so could we, uh, could we all just bow our heads and just close our eyes just in this, this moment. And um, friend, if you're here and you'd say, you know, Chris, I, I, I think that's what I need in my life. I intentionally want to take a step towards God and open up the door of my heart, allow Him in to do something in me. If that's you, would you just raise your hand right now? Just right across this place. Just right where you are. And I'll acknowledge it. Yeah, that's awesome, guys. That's fantastic. Just right down here in front of me. Others in this place, just quickly. Yep, God bless you. I see up the back there on the left. Just others really quickly. You just say, Chris, that's what I need. I need Jesus in my life today. And I'm going to open my heart to him right now. That's fantastic. Cool. Let's have a look up at the screen then together. And uh, we're all going to pray this together, church. And if you've just responded and you're really wanting to open your heart to God, this is a simple way of, uh, of helping you to express the faith that you sense in your heart. So I invite you to make it your own prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for forgiving me. Come into my life and I'll follow you. Amen. 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 Why don't we give it up for people who just made that decision? It's a great decision to make. And uh, what we want to do is help you uh, on your journey. We've got a Bible here that's free. You'll find uh, there's some people out there at the Connections Barrel. And uh, if you just go and approach them, they'll give you this few sheets of paper that'll go with it that'll help you get the most out of reading it we think that's the best thing we could do is give you a copy of uh, of scripture so that you can journey with God and hear in your own heart what he's saying to your life so we want to do that so please make make uh make that opportunity 